Well, hey, Mosaic. Well, I am extremely excited for this series, Science and Faith. Uh, I got my best professor gear on. I even got patches. Check that out. Check that out. But yeah, I think this is, thank you for coming here. If we haven't met before, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. Uh, On the front end, I'll say first and foremost, I am a pastor. I love Jesus. I love people. I'm not a scientist. Uh, I I, I love knowledge. Um, But yeah, I just, I want to say that first and foremost, uh, right from the get-go, because this is a difficult conversation, right? Because when you start getting, when you start talking about creation, people get fired up about it. Uh, I think inside the church, outside of the church, uh, it's just one of those conversations that most of the time we avoid. We avoid because it's difficult. We avoid it because it's very divisive. Uh, it causes so much conflict. And people leave churches over, this, uh, over these stances and these issues. Uh, this is a difficult conversation. So uh, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you came. Uh, I'm glad that we can brave this conversation uh, together. Because I, I truly believe that science and faith, uh, I think that they can live in harmony. I really do. Because I think if we truly believe what the scripture says in Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. And if science begins to tell us truths about the universe or about the way the world works, uh, I think we should pay attention to those things. Because I think a lot of times in the church world, we can fall into this, uh, this false dichotomy where we, we don't believe what science says because we have faith. And it becomes almost like a hear no evil, see no evil thing. It's like, nope, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, because I have faith. But my question is, is that faith, or is that your own ego refusing to, to believe something outside of what you originally believe? Right? And so, literally, my whole intention for us today is for us to get to the place that we say, wow, I could be wrong. So if you're here today and you are a person of faith, right, I want us to start this conversation in a place of humility where we say, I I could be wrong about the things that I think about science, the things that I think about the universe. And if you're here today and you are not a person of faith, same challenge, right? Wow, I could be wrong. Because I think a lot of times our ego gets in the way. Because once we create a set of beliefs about our life, they become structures. And the second someone begins to push back on those structures, we push right back really hard. And so what I want us to really do is to kind of check our egos at the door and say, I'm willing, I'm open, I want to hear what God has to say to us. I want to hear what the scriptures have to say to us. I want to hear what science and history has to say to us about why we are here. Because for me, humility is where ego dies, and that's where faith begins. So I would love to pray for us uh, before we really fully dive into this conversation. God, we thank you for your creation. We thank you that there was nothing, and then there was something God, we praise you that we exist, that we can sit in this room and we can form an opinion based on words that we hear. That alone is proof 
that you created us and that you love us and that you put your image in us. God, humble our hearts today. Open our minds, open our souls. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, My fascination with science started when I was probably about five or six years old. Uh, I remember I just got done taking a bath, and I pulled the plug, uh, and the water started draining. And for some reason, my mind was like, if half the water in this tub drains, it'll be here. But then if half that water drains, it's going to be here. And then if half that drains, it's going to be here. It's going to be here. It's going to be here. And then it got to the very, very bottom, and there was no more water going down the drain, but there was still water in the tub. And I thought, well, what if you get half of that amount of water and half of that amount of water? And so I tried to do it with my hand, and it kind of just spread. And it kind of drove me crazy. And so then I went and I grabbed a piece of paper, and I was like, okay, how do I do this? Like, I could rip this in half, and then I could rip this in half, this in half, this in half. And I began to think about it, and I was like, okay, I can rip this in half. I can rip this in half. Until I couldn't rip it in half anymore. But I knew that that piece of paper could get ripped in half. I knew I just, my fingers weren't physically capable of doing it. And all of a sudden, this paradox formed in my young mind, and I was like, oh my goodness, that piece of paper can always be ripped in half. And it, it threw me for a loop. And I remember that night, I, I was talking to my mom. She was tucking me into bed, and I said, Mom, who created God? And she said, No one. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, wh- like, when did God start? What was the beginning? And she said, no, God has always existed. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Well, God has existed forever. And I think we, we forget these simple, small little paradoxes. Because when we, when we, as people of faith, we look to eternity forward, right? And eternity future kind of makes sense to us. It makes sense to us because we're going forward, because we could remember a point in time where we were nothing, and then we became into being. But when you think about eternity past, it it just boggles your mind, because our brains cannot comprehend it. Our brains do not have the capability to comprehend exactly what eternity past looks like. Because we're talking about infinity here, right? We're talking about one of the ultimate paradoxes. And I think if you're in this room today, you probably fall into one of two camps, I'm guessing. One being uh, you have a faith in God that God created everything. But there's that paradox of how can I believe in eternity past? That just doesn't make sense. But then maybe the other point Uh, is if you're in here today and you don't believe that God created everything that we see, but that it all happened, there was a point in time where everything existed in about the size of a period on a a dot of a piece of paper, and then that blasted into everything that exists today. But where did that substance come from? Science says it's always been there. It's always been there. And that doesn't make sense, right? Right? So we have to embrace the fact that we start in ultimate paradox, right? We start in this place of confusion. We start in this place of, I really just don't know. And so honestly, like, I I feel like that has to be what our heart is always when it comes to this. Because when we begin to form 
these foundations in our mind that I have it right and someone else has it wrong, and we refuse to listen, when we begin to close off our ears because we say, no, I just got to have faith, I just got to have faith, I just got to have faith, stop confusing me, stop confusing me, you're making me doubt, I need to have faith. I don't think that is strong faith. In my opinion, that is a very weak faith. And when you look back in a lot of church history, church, uh, the church did a lot to persecute the advancement of science because their faith was small, their faith was weak. And if you take one pin out, the whole structure begins to crumble. So what are some of those things that maybe the church in the past uh, held on to, held on to for a really long time? And these things are kind of funny because uh, we just, we don't, we don't even think about it anymore. Comets, right? So comets were actually God, God's anger. They were a sign of doom, a sign of despair, that he was actually throwing something across the sky to say, watch out, doom is coming. Uh, we know now that is not the case. Uh, disease and insanity were either punishment of God or possession by demons. Uh, so when uh, Dr. Boylston, when he first inoculated his son in 1721 with a smallpox vaccine, the church condemned him for that action. They condemned him for that action because they said, how can you poison your child? Uh, lightning was considered punishment by sinners of God, and the church actually condemned Benjamin Franklin when he created the lightning rod because they said that he was uh, taking away God's capability of wrath and judgment, which is kind of funny to think about. Like, God's like, dang you, lightning rods! I can't electrocute people! Uh, for a long time, the church held on to this idea that the church was, that the church, that the earth was flat um, for a really, really long time. Uh, a big one that I really want to hone in on for a little bit of time is the idea that the earth revolved around, or that the sun revolved around the earth. They held on to that one for a really, really long time. And when this man named Copernicus came along and he said, no, in fact, the earth rotates around the sun, the church kind of got a little bit up in arms about it. Even Martin Luther, if you know Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation movement, if it wasn't for Martin Luther, you probably wouldn't be sitting in this room today, right? This is what he says when he heard about the ideas of Copernicus. There was mention of a certain new astrologer, couldn't even say his name, who wanted to prove that the earth moves and not the sky, the sun and the moon. This would be as if somebody were riding in a cart or in a ship and imagined that he was standing still while the whole earth and the trees were moving. So it goes now. Whoever wants to be clever must agree with nothing that the others esteem. He must do something of his own. This is what the fellow who does, who wishes to turn the whole of astronomy upside down. Even in these things, they are thrown into disorder. And then he goes on to say, because this sounds like a lot of people of faith that I know today. I believe the holy scriptures for Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. Humans are not infallible, right? We get it wrong sometimes. And I know that's like, duh, but so often we forget that. We get it wrong sometimes. And this man, Martin Luther, who was a great, great man, he did so many amazing things for the church. He got it wrong here. And I'm all for debate. 
right? I'm not saying that you have to accept what someone else is saying as truth. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm totally okay with him pushing back on this. But I think we need to have that posture that we could be wrong in some way. Uh, And the church did a lot to persecute Copernicus. Copernicus actually, he kept sort of his ideas hidden for around 30 years because he feared church persecution. And he didn't release a lot of his ideas until later on in his life, right before he died. Um, And then the church actually never gave him really credit after he died. And on his grave, uh, they wrote the words, I ask not the grace according to Paul, not that given to Peter. Give me only the favor which thou shown to the thief on the cross. And they kept silent about his works for a long time until another man named Galileo, right? He's considered the father of modern science. So Galileo comes along and he starts to prove mathematically Copernicus's ideas. And what happens is the Pope at the time, Pope Urban VIII, personally gave an order in 1633 that Galileo, who was 70 years old at the time, should be threatened with torture if he doesn't recant uh, his ideas, his confirmation of Copernicus's idea that the earth revolves around the sun, right? We're not even talking about something that is that big of a deal, and yet they're persecuting this man until he recants. And Galileo, he ended up, uh, he ended up recanting because of the amount of pressure and persecution on him, and he stayed under house arrest until he died. Uh, another man, Giordano Bruno, didn't fare so well. So Bruno, when I read his story, uh, he's got a killer mustache, by the way, doesn't he? <laughs> Love it. But Bruno, like, I resonated so much with his story because he was obsessive about infinity, He obsessed over the idea of of infinity. And I think to fully understand what happened to Bruno, we kind of need to see what the church actually believed the earth to be at the time of Bruno. And so I have this picture. Can you guys put that picture up there? So this is kind of the way that they saw the Genesis 1 story. And I purposely chose to use the King James translation. We don't hear that a lot in the church, but the King James translation actually uses a closer uh, derivative to the, to the actual Hebrew word, and that word is firmament, right? And that f- word firmament, it, it comes from the Hebrew word uh, rikaya. And that word firmament that they're using, it's a lot like what we find in Psalm 104 verse 2 where it says, covering, they're talking about God, that covering yourself with light as with a cloak stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. So the word firmament, it actually is a physical substance that they believe, a substance that actually goes around the sky. So we live in a flat earth, right? No, but they believed we did, okay? So the earth is flat, and then there's this firmament along the sky, and then there's water behind that firmament, which, which kind of makes sense to an ancient way of thinking. You look up at the sky, the sky is blue. You look at water, water is blue. It's like there must be an ocean in the sky. But here's the thing. They believe that the stars and the moon and the sun were all attached to that firmament. And so then Bruno comes along and he says, he says, well, what if I took an arrow and I had this arrow and I could shoot it, right? And then it just shoots straight and it keeps going straight eventually it's going to hit this firmament. It's going to hit a wall. And then Bruno suggested, but what if I stood on that firmament? 
What if I stood on that wall and I shot another arrow? Then that arrow would keep going, keep going, keep going, till it hit another wall. And then I could stand on that wall and I would shoot another arrow. And then we hit another wall. And so Bruno began to kind of lift the curtain behind this idea of this structure that holds the heavens. Uh, and we have another picture, which is kind of like a really cool rendition of Bruno kind of peeking behind the curtain of the firmament, right? And so when he began to suggest this idea that the universe was infinite, right, the church reacted very heavily. The church needed to nip that in the bud, right? They needed to squash that. And so Bruno was arrested and burned at the stake for heresy. Arrested and burned at the stake for heresy. For things that we just accept as normal facts today. And so I start with that. Not to say like the church is this big bad monster. But it's to say that there's a lot of danger when we believe that our position is right and someone else is wrong. And if that someone else comes with an idea that I don't agree with, then they must be heretics. They must be someone that needs to be squashed. And I will suggest today, right, is our faith any different than the faith of those who put Bruno on the stake? Right? Can our faith actually withstand the advancement of knowledge, the advancement of science? Is our faith big enough to actually withstand those things? Or is it small enough to say, I can't really handle that? I can't really handle that. And so I understand the conflict there. And it's not an easy conversation in any way whatsoever. But I believe science and faith, they can be so connected, but it's also two different conversations, right? Science is the explanation of how things work. But faith is the idea that we can connect to the one that makes all things work, right? So these things, they, we hold them in tension together, but they have different intentions a lot of times. They have different goals. And so I think that when we look at science, let's let science be science. Let's let faith be faith, but let's figure out a way to make those two get married. Let's have healthy arguments. Let's have healthy conflicts. Let's accept the fact that, man, maybe I don't have it right. Maybe I don't have it all together. And so today, we are in the year 2016, and the argument is still raging, right? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And even in communities of faith, uh, the idea of our theology of Genesis 1 can be very vast, can be very different from each other. And so what I want to do is, I kind of want to walk us through actually what those viewpoints are. Um, so, uh, most of us have heard uh, some of the viewpoints of, of uh, the creation account and what creation theology is. And probably the one that we hear the most uh, is sort of Ken Ham. Did anyone see the Bill Nye-Ken Ham debate? A couple of us, some of it. Uh, we're not that interested in creation, are we? But uh, I saw it. Uh, Bill Nye kind of blasted Ken Ham. It was kind of funny. But, um, so we have young earth creation. So young earth creation, 
the belief here, it's, 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 pro- it's the most prevalent, the most common today, is that the book of Genesis uh, and the creation account is six literal days. So day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, right? And on day seven, God rested. And so those are literal 24-hour days, right? So these are 24-hour days. And then the earth itself is 6,000 years old. The universe is 6,000 years old. And so this theory, it, I, I kind of want to talk through some strengths and weaknesses to each viewpoint. So the strength of this theory is actually that, uh, that it requires a lot of faith, right? It's taking Genesis and it's taking a very literal approach to what it's saying. Uh, it, it also has some weaknesses to it. Um, the bane of its existence is dinosaurs, right? I was like, dinosaurs were planted by the devil himself. They don't say that, but I think it's cute to <laughs> cartoon them that way. But, um, but no, it has some weaknesses here. And then some of the weaknesses that are consistently pointed out is the sun's not created till day four. Uh, and we know that the sun was created before the earth. Uh, well, science says that it is anyways. Um, that's one weakness to it. Carbon dating. So you hear a lot of young earth creationists defending carbon dating, uh, that carbon dating is wrong, um, which is always a really hard pill for me to swallow. Like I said, I'm not a scientist. I'm a pastor, right? I love people. I love Jesus. Uh, and I love learning, but I'm not a scientist. So when I hear people like talk about the science of carbon dating, I'm just like, oh my gosh, give me a pillow. Like, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying right now. Um, but when like the vast majority of uh, of scientific community and Stephen Hawking's and these geniuses say, no, we, we need to pay attention to carbon dating. And then I'm like, you work at McDonald's. Like, why should I believe you? I'm not, I'm not blasting McDonald's or anything because I love McDonald's. You guys know that. Um, but I, I, think that I, think, I think there is some good defenses there. You know, there, there really is, even, even in the carbon dating. And I think we need to keep pushing the scientific community. Uh, there's some other weaknesses to young earth creation, um, those things are, oh, so the light in the universe. So this, this one is like a really popular one. I got a picture of this. So if the universe was only 6,000 years old, the, the problem with that is the universe is so vast, right? And we all have heard the terms light year, right? And so if the universe is, itself was 6,000 years old, these would be the only stars that we would be able to see in the sky, just that little circle, because this is basically 6,000 light years. And this is our Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. And so we look at that and we begin to think, okay, well, maybe God just sped up time. You know, maybe God just sped up a billion years in a 24-hour time period. It's like, okay, you know, to me, a billion years is still a billion years, even if it's sped up or not. Um, so there's strengths and there's some weaknesses to this, uh, this, this viewpoint. So then we have old earth, right? Old earth creationists. And this is kind of separated into a few different uh, viewpoints that I kind of want us to explore each one of them. So the first one is the gap theory. So the gap theory is that uh, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Was those uh, 
billions of years. So this is Genesis 1.1. And then God began to create. You know, this has some strengths to it. Obviously, it explains some things. Uh, it explains carbon dating. explains why the world is as old as it is. Um, it has some weaknesses too, though. Uh, some of the same weaknesses as the young earth creation, um, just in terms of where do animals come into play there. Uh, and I, I think it's taking a pretty loose interpretation of that gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but that's fine. Uh, the next one that we see is we see progressive creation. And this is the idea that when it says days... Um, it's actually talking about periods of time. So this could be a million years. Because really the the theory behind uh, progressive creationists is that the word day, uh, the word day in the Hebrew language is the word yom. Um, So we look at the word yom, Y-O-M, and about 1,800 out of the 2,300 times and we find that word in Scripture, it's literally the word day. Uh, and, but occasionally it's used uh, as the word age or season or year. And so that word is kind of fluid, kind of adaptable. Uh, progressive creationists, they hold pretty fast to uh, that verse in 2 Peter 3, 8, where it says, Do not forget, uh, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So... Progressive creationists, they hold really, really firmly uh, on that passage of Scripture. Um, there's, there's a lot of strengths to this one. Uh, the strengths to this one, obviously, is it explains certain things. Um, it explains things about uh, how old the universe is. It explains things uh, in terms of... Uh, so progressive creationists, they believe in a microevolution, that species can actually evolve uh, in the way that they look but they don't evolve into different species. Uh, and so a big, a big part of this um, argument, not argument, but uh, like microevolution kind of looks like this. So I think I have a picture of some moths. So there's the peppered moth, right? So in England, the peppered moth, it was, woof, that is a really low resolution picture. That's bad. Um, so it's supposed to be white with like, like peppered black specks, right? And so in England... Uh, Back in the day, like, 97% of the population looked like this, and 3% of the population looked like that. Because when it was on a tree, the black one stood out like a sore thumb. So the birds would eat the black moths. And then all of a sudden, the Industrial Revolution hit, pollution hit, trees began to turn a lot darker because of the soot and the cold that got attached to them. So trees would get dark, and then all of a sudden, everything flipped. And so the majority of the population looks a lot more like the black moth than the white. And so that's an evolution of that particular species. And progressive creationists kind of hold fast to that God would create in these moments and then time would pass. And then God would create in these moments and time would pass. Because as we look through archaeological history, a lot of times you see bursts of species kind of just, just fly on the scene um, where it's just like all of a sudden these bursts of species and these animals... Um, Progressive creation, obviously, it, it takes a non-literal approach to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, 
I, I think the, heart, the, the biggest weakness to progressive creation is that you have to accept the fact that death, disease, and cancer uh, is a part of existence before the fall of man. <coughs> because if Adam and Eve aren't created until way over here, I mean, I'm not even on day six, right? If Adam and Eve aren't until way over there, we have to accept the fact that animals and fish have cancer and are dying, um, and that the Garden of Eden was not a perfect place where there was no death and everything was vegetarian. Um, and I think, I think it, you know, and so I think people who grow up in the church, we, we read through the scriptures and we fall in love with these stories, and then we begin to hear really kind of good arguments, but then it's like, man, you know? Like, okay, there's some implications there if I want to embrace that theology. Uh, and then the last one I really want to talk about is uh, theistic evolution. Uh, this is one that is getting to be pretty popular. Um, but this is the idea that, you know, God basically created, right? God creates everything here and puts everything in motion, puts everything in motion. Uh, the strength to that is you basically can adapt science. So whatever science says, you can kind of just hold that on and say, yeah, that's true. And God fits into that model. Uh, the, we- the biggest weakness in that one is the image of God. You know, that in Genesis chapter one, it says that God said, let us make man in our own image. Uh, one of the false things about evolution is that we are just evolved monkeys. That's actually not the case. Evolution says that we have a common ancestor, uh, but we are not evolved apes or chimps or monkeys. Um, But the hard part about that is, man, where does the image of God come in? Where does God come in and say, no, this is something different, that humans are separate from the rest of creation, that we are lords over creation? And so... We look at this, right? And that there's four different viewpoints that people in the church believe about creation, about the way things that were created. Uh, I found this stat online. Can we pop up that next picture? So this stat online, they, they kind of, uh, they, they polled a bunch of pastors, a bunch of clergy and Protestant ministers, and they said, okay, where do you guys fall in this? And I just want to share it because this is where kind of, a lot, of, a lot of your church falls. And so they, they do uh, young earth, progressive, and theistic evolution. And so obviously the majority is happening in the young earth side. You got 19% saying core, without a doubt, definitely, no question about it. 35% are saying, yeah, but it's really hard to kind of see some things. Um, you have your progressive creation happening over here. And then you have the theistic evolution happening right there. And 12% are uncertain. And so I wanted to really throw this out there to say this, right? And I think this is vitally important. What I'm not saying is you get to pick and choose and believe whatever you want. That's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you could just say, oh yeah, believe whatever you want to believe. Because one of these have to be true right? Either one of these have to be true or we're way off and it's something entirely different. 
But the idea is, is your faith strong enough? And I'm haunted by just the memories of the past of the church where we totally got it wrong. Where we put scientists on the stake and we burn them. And I I constantly, I can't get that out of my head. And I, I have to ask myself, where's my ego at? Where's my faith at? Because a lot of time I feel like what I've heard throughout my life is you got to have childlike faith. Jesus said you got to have faith like a child. And so often that, that, that is said to be the hear no evil, see no evil mentality where it's like no matter what you say, I'm not going to hear it. No matter what you say, I'm not going to hear it. And I would argue that is not childlike faith. That is childish faith. <laughs> Boom. Come on. <laughs> Preach. Get up here dancing. Uh, and I will say this, at some point in history, this fence sort of went up, right? This fence goes up. And on one side, you have a literal interpretation of the Bible, and you have a non-literal. And I hear this a lot. It's like, it's like if you accept a non-literal translation of Genesis 1, then you have to take all of the Bible and say it's non-literal, and this fence is sort of erected that you have to, if you're going to take things literally, you've got to take it all literally. If you're taking things non-literally, you've got to take it all non-literally. Um, which we just had that Song of Songs series, and taking a literal interpretation of that is very weird and awkward. Right? And I think what ends up happening is, what we see is like, oh, this is the conservative, and this is the liberal. Right? And so if you want to stay on the conservative side of things, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta stay, you gotta stay literal. But man, I, I don't know, I look at my life and I think, I'm in love with my wife. Right? I can I can literally describe to you scientifically how that is operating in my mind, but I can't say how that's operating in my soul through science. Right? I can tell you I, I can tell you scientifically exactly why I love my wife. But what if I told you a story, like that at 10 o'clock last night, our neighbor's cat was lost, and Nicole was outside for an hour helping our neighbors find their stupid cat, (laughs) right? That's why I love her. Like, she's willing to do that. Doesn't that make it a little bit more true? Man, the creation account, no matter where you fall on this spectrum of your theology, It's God involved with his creation because he is madly in love with us. And God always speaks in the language that his people will understand. And when God gave this account to Moses 4,000 years ago, he's speaking in a language that Moses can understand. And I don't want us to fall into this weird category that says a literal translation of this means that I'm more conservative, which means that I have more faith. Because, man, it's, it's not about that. It's not that conversation. And it breaks my heart that what I see so often in my life is Christians who just close their ears and close their eyes because they want to be filled with faith. And it's good intentions. But good intentions aren't good enough. You know, the Bible, Jesus, when he was on this earth, he said... We should worship God in spirit and in truth. And I believe that we should be seekers of truth. 
that we should try as hard as possible to find what truth is and the reality of truth. Is there an absolute truth in the universe? Absolutely. His name is Jesus, right? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Man, the Bible is God's interaction with his humanity because he is madly and desperately trying to pull us towards him. And my fear is that this can become so divisive This can become so demonizing that we just push people away. We push the scientific community away because we say, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm going to close my ears and shut my eyes. So today, do we have enough faith to say, I could be wrong? Do we have enough faith to say, you know what? I really need to kind of start looking into this. I really need to kind of start exploring these different theologies, because here's the thing. None of these are heresy. They really aren't. And maybe that's hard for you to hear, and that's hard for you to accept, but they're not. Like, if if someone has a theory that says, God created the world out of his hatred for humanity just so that we'll fight each other, right? I, I could see someone saying that, but that's not on the board because that's not who God is. That's not why God created us. That would be a heretical view of the creation account, but these just simply aren't. Man, I just believe that God wants us to be seekers of truth. And so the beginning of this journey, science and faith, we got to say, you know what? We're going to actually embrace some hard conversations. We're going to step into some really, really hard things to think about, accept, and understand. Uh, And I understand that this can be a very divisive issue for people. And so, man, I just love that you guys are willing to embrace this conversation. Uh, And let's consider this the start to the conversation not the end, uh, in any way, shape, or form. And let us have faith that is big enough to say, God, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to believe that you are good. God, no matter what ideologies and theologies come my way, I'm going to believe that you did become one of us and that you did die on a cross and that you did rise from the dead so that we can live in harmony, we can live together forever. I hope today we can be in this place and we could say, man, God is an artist. Creation is pretty freaking cool. And the earth that we live in, this is a gift. The fact that we could be here, the fact that we're breathing, the fact that our brain is processing all this information, the fact that you are agreeing and disagreeing with the things that I'm saying shows that we are alive and shows just how much God cares and loves you. Let's pray together. God, I'm not going to lie, things can be so confusing. But God, I know (laughs) you didn't give us a science book, you didn't give us a math book. You gave us this beautiful book that shows how you are constantly chasing after us. You're constantly wanting us to to pull us closer to you. And so God, as we look at the vastness of the universe, and as we look at so much that we just don't 
No. We just trust in faith and we say, you are God. You are God. That there is no way that all of this could exist out of nothing without you being a part of it. We praise you for the intricacies of the universe and the lives that we live. And we are so grateful that you are not a God who is just on some distant throne above some firmament in the universe. But you are here. You are present. You are spirit. And so God... I pray that every heart in this room is turned towards you. pray that every heart in this room says, Jesus, you are the way. Jesus, you are the truth. Jesus, you are the life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you love us and that you're here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.